0: Imagine stealing a meditation cushion. <laughs> sort of reluctant to say, I don't want to make this person feel guilty.
1: <laughs>
0: they probably just thought, what we should do is have meditation cushions here. It is a meditation center after all. But so today is, uh, depending on your, your um, level of political correctness, it is either Columbus Day um, or Indigenous Peoples' Day, depending which side of the ocean you're looking at it from. Um, but it's certainly, for, for a long, long time, it's been a holiday to celebrate the movement of people from Europe to the what's called the New World, to North America, South America. And actually, a lot of the people who came, some were the conquistadors after gold and you know, treasure and, and plunder. Um, but many, many of the people who came actually were refugees who were escaping, looking for religious freedom or economic freedom in some fashion. Um, in the time of the Buddha, very long ago, 2,500 years ago, after he had trained and awakened and brought a, a realization of deep compassion and freedom into the community of those around him. Then at one point he said to all those with him, go out, go forth, my friends, um, into all the parts of the world, not going the same direction, but in every direction, and bring that which you've learned, the Dharma, which is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, the teachings of wakefulness, of compassion, of loving-kindness, of freedom of heart. Bring those teachings in any language, in every language, to those who you meet for their welfare, for their well-being, for their happiness, and for their benefit. And rather than going out to plunder or find colonies or take something over, um, the offering at that time from the Buddha was to go and meet people in their own land, in their own language, and simply remind them of their own Buddha nature and give them the practices that they can use to awaken themselves. In that way, the Buddha was a great revolutionary. Um, Not only the revolution within ourselves, from uh, the body of fear, the small sense of self, to that, awakened heart of freedom and compassion. But a social revolutionary who invited everyone to come and participate in the Dharma equally at a time when there were castes of Brahmins and uh, Vaishnavites and Shudras and um, Kshatriyas, the warrior caste and the untouchables that you'll hear about this evening. The Buddha said, those who come and practice the Dharma will be known as noble beings by their hearts. So one is addressed, O nobly born to every man and woman who some of the dharma is taught to, you who are the son and daughter of the Buddha from whatever race or class or caste, you who are nobly born, you are noble by virtue of your compassion, your understanding, your virtue, your own integrity. So tonight Parma Bodhi who is a member of the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order and a Dharma teacher for many years, will come and um, we have a spirit or tradition here at, at this center of inviting periodically teachers from other Buddhist communities, to come in so we can learn from other perspectives and other ways of practice, and so I'm very grateful that you're here with us this evening. The community that he is a member of uh, is the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order is its name, and its uh, primarily um, or biggest community is developed in England and then in India as well, as he'll speak about. by. Um, started by a man named Sangharakshita who was a generation before myself. I went to Asia in the 1960s, Joseph Goldstein, some of us. Sangharakshita went 20 years before that in the 1940s. He was in the war um, and then he just stayed in Asia afterward, kind of a contemporary of Lama Govinda. He's now in his 70s and he ordained in the early 1950s as a Buddhist monk. Spent many years training as a monk in Sri Lanka, Burma, India, places in Asia, and also trained beside the Theravada tradition, trained with Tibetan lamas in the Tibetan and the Mahayana traditions, Vajrayana traditions, and then returned to England, I guess it was in the late 1950s when he went back, mid 60s, mid 60s after a long time in Asia, as a monk in robes and saw that for him it didn't work to keep the strict rules in the traditional way without a whole order and monastery. And so he started a a different way of practice that was halfway between the uh, monastic order and the lay order, for lay people to receive the teachings uh, and focused on the refuge of Buddha and Dharma and Sangha, of the teachings of the Buddha and the community that awakens together. And in that new form of practice, developed communal houses um, where men would live together and other communal houses where women would live together as practice communities, developed a series of businesses so that they could practice right livelihood and right speech, um, and made the way that people live together within Western society the focus of their spiritual practice. He also created a kind of lay priest order, and I believe this white, um, what do you call it? Kesa, which is, I guess, a Japanese word. Uh, So he sort of borrowed from the different Buddhist traditions, is a representative of the lay priest in that order, who is a lay person, um, but has gone through a very serious and and, um, deeply committed training in Buddhist practice to then both teach and hold the function of a a Buddhist teacher and priest. Um, And the community which is thriving in England um, and now has a few centers, including the one Parma Bodhi's uh, part of here in San Francisco in the Mission District, um, is really based on a very deep sense of spiritual friendship and commitment of people to be teachers for one another. Tonight, Bodhi is going to speak about a very great story of the uh, conversion in India 40 years ago of uh, millions of untouchables who were part of the caste system in a terrible way um, by a a great uh, man in India, Dr. Ambedkar, to become Buddhists. And so I'll leave it to him to continue. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Jack. Thank you for that very thorough introduction to our Buddhist movement and our order. Um, And the first thing I want to say is how very pleased I am to be back here at Spirit Rock. And sitting in this very spot, actually, about three years ago, I led a metta meditation here as part of of a, a teaching day, which followed a Western Buddhist teachers' conference, which we'd had here and at Green Gulch. And that was my induction into Buddhism in America. Actually, I'd just come here from England, and it was a bit like a baptism of fire. And uh, I remember that day very well. And I remember sitting here and doing a metta meditation. And so three years have now passed, and I'm back, and I'm very, very glad to be back. And I'm very grateful for the people here at Spirit Rock with Jack and and the others for inviting me here to to speak to you this evening. This evening is a, you know it's a very special celebration. It's a very special anniversary. It's the 40th anniversary of Dr. Ambedkar's conversion to Buddhism and the inauguration of what became known as the of of the Dharma revolution, the mass conversion of ex-untouchable Hindus to Buddhism, that is still continuing today. And this is the story I'm going to tell you. It's it's a classic Buddhist story. Uh, It has its harrowing moments. It's It's a journey of many people from extreme suffering, to, to joy, to liberation. And this is what always the Buddhist path is. From, it's a journey from suffering in whatever form, to whatever degree, to liberation, to freedom, to emancipation. And this story of Dr. Ambedkar encapsulates that and does it in a very strong way, a very moving way, and uh, in a very big way. Dr. Ambedkar was a very big man. (laughs) Um, I think it's rather a nice coincidence that it's Columbus Day or Indigenous People's Day. As far as I remember, Columbus headed out to find India, and he bumped into America by mistake. (laughs) So, (laughs) I think that's how the story went.
0: So we're all here by mistake. We are supposed
2: to be in India. Um, another funny thing was that I just read yesterday that I don't know if this is a good bad, good or a bad thing, but I just read that McDonald's has opened its first its first outlet in India
1: wow. today
2: today on this very auspicious day. <laughs> the funny thing about it is is that they have no beef. <laughs> This comes into my story a bit later on, but there's no beef in McDonald's in India. They have Maharaja Mac.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's made out of sheep. There you go, dead sheep. The cows got away with it, but not the sheep. But they're also catering for vegetarians. I, I think that's a new thing for McDonald's. Anyway, so it's, it's a funny coincidence. Um, <laughs> it also happens to be a coincidence that today we started converting our building in the mission district we started, the, the contractors came in and started ripping everything to pieces and we started our building project to, to build a Dharma centre there in the mission and I, I know that such things are going on here at, at Spirit Rock and it, it's a wonderful thing to see these things happen, these transformations happening and the development of the Dharma here so I'll get back I'll get into my story, my story of Dr. Ambedkar. I have a little picture of him. Yeah, maybe you can see that. Um, Where can we start? Well, we can start by saying it's a day of celebration because it's the 40th anniversary of of Ambedkar's personal conversion and uh, the inauguration, as I was saying, of this mass conversion which involves millions of people uh, converting to Buddhism. So we're joining in with a worldwide celebration here. and I'm very glad you know, to be here and to be with you all here on this particular day. I'm going to be giving a series of lectures around the Bay Area over the next six weeks. In fact, Ambedkar was only a Buddhist for six weeks. He died six weeks after his conversion. It was at the end of his life. And his life was quite an extraordinary life, which is what I'm going to be talking to you about. Uh, but there, you can be sure that in India at this time, or over the, I don't know how the time clock things work on this planet, but over this period, uh, there are millions of Buddhists in India celebrating. On Bombay Beach, there will be upwards of a million people on the beach celebrating this, this day, the 14th of October, 1956. It's now 1996. In Nagpur, which is right in the center of India, which is the actual place that Ambedkar converted, there will be probably more people Possibly several million people if they can get there. Uh, It's an extraordinary thing. There will be people all over the UK and Europe celebrating. Um, There are people in North America celebrating. There are Ambedkar Buddhists, as they're known, in North America. I've met some in Vancouver. But they're scattered all over the place now. But still, I think it's the case that Ambedkar is relatively unknown. And uh, he plays a very, very important part in in modern history, I would say, as a social emancipator, a liberator of of millions of people. So it's an important story, and as well as a very fascinating one. So Dr. Ambedkar, he was born in, 19, in 1891, and he was the 14th child in his family, which is not unusual <laughs> in India. And uh, as Jack mentioned, he was born an untouchable. So really, I have to start this story, you know, at the bottom with saying something about untouchability. He was born an untouchable, which meant he was born outside of, sort of adhered to, but outside of the caste system. Um, it's, it's, it's harrowing. It's, it's, at that time especially, it was very extreme. I'm, I'm gonna read to you a little, little piece which was something Sangharachita wrote Uh, ten years ago about, it's very short, about untouchables. This was written ten years ago, it's quite recent. There are at present 100 million untouchables in India, the vast majority of whom are underprivileged in every sense of the term. Each year between four and five hundred of them are murdered by their caste Hindu compatriots while thousands more are beaten, raped, and tortured, and their homes looted and burned. An incalculable number of them are not only subject to social, economic, and religious discrimination, but daily suffer personal harassment and humiliation. Now, this was written ten years ago. At that time, untouchability was illegal. It had been declared illegal with the Indian independence in 1947. However, so these people are referred to as ex-untouchables, but in reality, they're not necessarily ex. Um, The untouchables were denied any form of education. They were not allowed to own any property. They were only allowed to wear cast-off clothes and to eat scrap food. And uh, this was socially and politically and religiously sanctioned. It wasn't just a matter of, you know, as it were, discrimination. And uh, they were told to accept this as their deserved place in society. They'd been born untouchables for good reason. This was how the caste system worked, that you were born into your caste and that was your lot. You, you deserved that for your pre- from previous lives. That was your karma and you had to just put up with it. So that was the case, certainly, at the time Ambedkar was born in 1891. Many things have changed since that. But that was the case at that time. Uh, now, Ambedkar was very, very fortunate and very unusual. He was, he was born an untouchable. He should have had no education at all. However, his father was in the British Army. Now, the British had a lot to answer for in India and, you know, not, not many good things. But one good thing was that they helped the untouchables. They helped them because they gave them jobs in the army. <laughs> and anyone that was in the army, their families were also supported and their children were given an education. So actually prior to that, and Bedker, who is who is uh, already somewhat... Uh, adventurous, would go to the schools and sit outside and listen in through the window and try and catch the lessons that were going on. This is how he started his education, by sitting outside the classroom. As an untouchable, he couldn't go into the building. So he used to sit outside and listen through the window. However, because of his father being in the British Army, he, he got an education and he ended up going to the Bombay University where he graduated he was the first, and at the time, the only untouchable ever to have graduated. And uh, the result of that was uh, Ambedkar's first mass public meeting and celebration. He was just a young man, maybe about 20 years old. And a public meeting was held in his honor because of this momentous occasion that he'd graduated from the Bombay University. And in fact, a uh, high caste Hindu then took up his case and sponsored him. So you can see at that time, you know, there, there were many people within the car system who didn't necessarily agree with what was going on. And uh, Ambedkar was fortunate to find a personal sponsor. And uh, he, he got a scholarship and he left India and he set sail and he went to New York. <laughs> <laughs> he came to America and uh, he went to Columbia University and that's where he studied. And uh, in fact, at Columbia University, he studied economics, sociology, history, philosophy, anthropology, and politics. Uh, he was an exceptional student. He uh, spent three years at Columbia University um, gaining a PhD or doctorate or a, a graduate studies, whatever he was doing. And he went from there to London and continued with his studies at the London School of Economics. He became eminently qualified. He also went on to study in Germany rather more briefly and he returned to India in 1923 at the age of 32 and he, he, his intention was to engage in political life. The first thing that happened to him was he, he had a job at, uh, at Baroda State uh, because this is where his sponsorship money had come from and part of that deal was that he had a job to go to when he went back to India However, he was basically run out of town. He, he was not He tried to get lodgings in this town, and it's a, it's a sort of gruesome story. It's his return to India after many years away. Same story. nothing had changed. He couldn't go into the town at all. He was just hounded out of town. He couldn't get any sort of a room. He was an untouchable. And no untouchable could live in a room. You had to live outside of the town, outside of the village. The untouchables always lived outside of the town, in where the sewers were, basically. that's where the untouchables lived. And so Ambedkar, after his years in the West, just came right back into the same situation, which was a very harrowing thing, experience to have. Uh, He moved to Bombay, and he entered the political arena very forcefully. At that time, the independence movement was was underway, was in full swing. Uh, The independence movement from British rule, and Ambedkar came into it in a rather interesting way because he, he was saying if no country is fit to rule over another then no caste is fit to rule over another either. And so he came straight into it with, this, with the cause of the untouchables understandably. In some ways he worked with Gandhi. Gandhi was the, uh, the leader of the independence movement. He was the leader of the Congress Party. And uh, however... They clashed rather badly. They had very strong differences of opinion in how to work with the the cause of the untouchables. Uh, It it came to the crunch over the issue of separate electorates. Uh, I'm not going to go into this too thoroughly, but Ambedkar wanted separate electorates for the untouchables, as had already been granted for Muslims, Sikhs, and Christians. He felt they were a special case Gandhi was absolutely opposed to it. He didn't want them, as it were, becoming split off from the rest of the Hindus. A hundred million of these people was too many. (laughs) Um, It was actually agreed at the Round Table Conference in London, which Gandhi and Ambedkar took part in, and it went through the board, and it was agreed that separate electorates would be granted to the untouchables. However... Gandhi then went on a fast until death. Uh, That was his response. Uh, There were threats to Ambedkar's life. It became a very, very delicate situation. Uh, Ambedkar backed down. He said he didn't mind losing the life of Gandhi, but he was not prepared to lose the life of millions of people, and that was what was going to happen. So they negotiated what became known as the Pune Pact, and... uh, that resulted in a joint electorate um, and other special privile- privileges for the untouchables. However, Ambedkar continued with his, his campaign for the untouchables and he started campaigns entering the temples and drawing water from public wells. So these were the two of the main things the untouchables were not allowed to do. They could not enter any temple. They could not even hear the Vedas, the religious teachings, or speak them. If they did, their ears and their tongue, you know, they would be mutilated. They were not allowed to draw water from a public well. It would pollute it. An untouchable literally means, you know, if you touch a caste Hindu, they're polluted. If you touch the water or any food that a caste Hindu would want to drink or eat, it becomes polluted. And uh, the way that they would actually purify it is either a a, a Brahmin could put his foot in the water, and that would purify it, or cow urine. Cow urine would also purify it. So the touch of a person would uh, pollute it, and the cow urine would purify it again. So they started this campaign of drawing water from the public wells and entering the temples and uh, perhaps more significantly and more uh, provocatively, you could say, uh, Dr. Ambedkar ceremonially burnt the Manusmriti, which is one of the Hindu law books uh, in which it is written about an untouchable. All these things were written in this. It is written in the Manusmriti, And uh, so he publicly burnt this. He had already... He was moving away from Hinduism. Uh, He declared himself that by 1932 he was the most hated man in India, especially, of course, hated by the caste Hindus. In 1935, he uh, also very dramatically made this declaration that although he had been born a Hindu, he certainly did not intend to die one and he was starting to consider all other world religions in a very thorough manner. I'll come into that again in a minute. Uh, 1939, Second World War, um, Gandhi and the uh, Congress party engaged in civil disobedience, passive resistance, and Bedka was sending all the untouchables to join the army. Get a job. uh, also, he felt that the Nazis, it wouldn't work. Passive resistance wouldn't work. They needed to be fought. So there was another difference there over the uh, involvement with the army. 1947, uh, India gained independence from British rule, and Ambedkar became the law minister. So this was a very a daring step by Nehru, who was the, the prime minister, It was a political move, and uh, he took a risk, and he made Ambedkar the law minister. The other side of it was that actually Ambedkar was very, very effective. He was the most qualified man in India, uh, and he did an extremely good job. He spent two years writing the Indian Constitution, much of which is based on the American Constitution. Uh, By the time he'd finished writing it, it it passed straight through the, the Parliament with virtually no amendments. Uh, 1948, partition, the Hindu Muslim wars, uh, and Gandhi was assassinated by the Muslims. Uh, in 1949, the constitution was adopted, and Ambedkar became a national hero. So he'd gone from being the most hated man in India to becoming a national hero with this constitution of India and being the law minister of independent India. It's quite an astonishing feat to have come from. Sitting outside the school window, to becoming the law minister, the first law minister of India. Quite unbelievable, actually. Um, However, once he'd become the law minister, he'd written the constitution. You know, he went a step further. He wrote the Hindu Code Bill, and this was very radical. Uh, It it involved a lot of new laws concerning marriage, adoption, women's rights, women's right to own property, which was at that point not at all possible, Uh, rights of succession and so forth. It was a a complex bill, it was quite radical, and it did not make it through Parliament. He struggled with it for two years, uh, at which point after which he resigned. 1951, he resigned from the cabinet over this Hindu code bill. Uh, And at that point, he concentrated on his other tactic, which had been going on meanwhile, which was to change religion. So with independent India, untouchability had been declared illegal. However, it didn't actually make very much, if any, difference at all. Uh, so he's, he, was, he was coming at it from this other point of view of, of conversion to another religion. And uh, he was studying all the major religions. He was very, very thorough in everything that he did, Dr. Ambedkar. He had three criteria as he was studying the various religions. Uh, that it would accord with reason, that it would promote liberty, equality, and fraternity, and that it would, it would not ennoble poverty. That's quite interesting because sometimes people think Buddhism does ennoble polity. But of course it doesn't. (laughs) You have to think about that one possibly. So he studied these major religions. He also studied Marxism. He studied Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, Marxism. Uh, Buddhism emerged very clearly and very strongly as the religion of choice. Uh, And during his studies, he came up with a very interesting theory, which nobody else had come up with at this point, that in actual fact the untouchables had originally been Buddhists. He actually wrote, he, I've mentioned a few of the things Ambedkar is kind of more famous for. There are many, many more things. He wrote profusely all of his life. He published many books, many papers. He opened schools, universities. He started more than one political party. He was an extremely active man. I think Jack was talking earlier about the, the, the in and the out, and he was a very much an out kind of Buddhist. <laughs> uh, he didn't waste very much time. Um, so he came up with this very interesting theory. It's, uh, it's unprovable, but it does make a lot of sense. Uh, ever since the time of the Buddha, there'd been um, an antithesis, uh, a tension between the Brahmins and the Buddhists. Uh, very early on in, when the Buddha started teaching, he, he started teaching in terms of what is a true Brahmin. This was the sort of terminology he used. You can't be born a Brahmin. You can only be a Brahmin by being a Brahmin, by being compassionate, by being wise, by being kind, and so forth. That was what a true Brahmin is. This is how he often taught at the beginning of his career. He was straight away in opposition to the caste system and Brahminism as it was more then, than sort of Hinduism as it developed. The Brahmins were kind of at the top of the pile and were the um, the religious people because they were born as Brahmins. So the Buddha came in with this, you know, the true Brahmin being a true individual, a compassionate and wise person. Uh, so there'd been this kind of tension between the Brahmins and the Buddhists for, for a very long time, thousands of years. Um, it's, it seems, it's, it's a complex story, but uh, to put it very, as simply as I can, the, uh, some thousand years after the time of the Buddha, maybe, you know, about a thousand years afterwards, uh, the Muslims had, Buddhism had kind of got stuck in the monasteries, the Muslims had destroyed the monasteries, and uh, the Buddhists were, walking, were wandering around. And uh, there were a lot of other people wandering around India, which are known as broken men, from tribal people that had lost various wars. And uh, the, the Buddhists, it seems, got mixed up with the broken men. Uh, the, the Brahmins kind of took the upper hand. And one of their chief practices up to that point had been animal sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of cows is what they used to do and they used to give the dead cows to the Buddhists and the Buddhists would eat whatever they were given. They they lived on alms food. So if they were given meat they would eat it. So they were given the dead cows to eat from the animal sacrifices. The the, the Brahmins kind of turned it on its head and declared the cow sacred and anybody that ate a cow was um, an outcast. And that's... That was Ambedkar's theory. I've actually not done it justice. But that's the kind of the meaty bones of it. The uh, <laughs> the cow eating and going from killing cows, animal sacrifice, to declaring the cow sacred. An actual fact, in, in between, in between, there was the Emperor Ashoka. He was a very interesting emperor. He was a Buddhist emperor and he ruled pretty much all of India. And he actually had declared animal sacrifices illegal. Uh, he'd started up animal rights. He'd started up rights for prisoners. He'd started up a whole welfare system in India. He, he was an emperor that ruled according to Dharma. He's a Buddhist emperor. Very interesting. That was about two or 300 years after the time of Buddha, and probably that's when Buddhism peaked in India. So we're talking another 500 years after that, probably, that uh, the Brahmins kind of turned the tables, and Buddhism was pretty well wiped out of India. Um, So there'd been no Buddhists in India for at least a thousand years, to to all intents and purposes. At the time Ambedkar was alive, there were a few uh, Burmese, Sinhalese, other Asian Buddhists around, pretty well no Indian Buddhists. uh, Buddhism was uh, part of Indian history. So he had this theory... That, uh, in fact, he was reclaiming his heritage. He was discovering the roots of his people. The Untouchables were originally the Buddhists that had been wiped out, uh, primarily by the Muslims. Uh, Around about this time, uh, Ambedkar met Sangharachita, my own teacher. Uh, Jack gave the little story there of Sangharachita. And uh, Sangharachita was the first monk that um, Ambedkar met that he actually trusted. He was a Westerner. It's a rather interesting meeting, a sort of meeting of East and West, that uh, he'd met this English monk and he entered into dialogue with him and he uh, he learned from Sangharachata the meaning of conversion to Buddhism, how one actually became a Buddhist, uh, how one could go for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma and the spiritual community, the Sangha. Uh, in two meetings, they went through this very thoroughly, uh, and Bedkar asked Sangharapstha to give a public talk in Bombay to, I think it was about 30,000 people at that particular meeting, which is a relatively small crowd, uh, on the meaning of conversion to Buddhism. During this time, Ambedkar was writing a book called The Buddha and His Dharma. He was not going to convert publicly to Buddhism until he'd written a book that would be available to his people so that they would understand what it meant to be a Buddhist, how to be a Buddhist, how to practice Buddhism, its essential teachings. Uh, So he asked Sangharachita if he would actually conduct the ordination ceremony, and Sangharachita suggested Uchandramani would be a better candidate, and that was his own preceptor who had ordained uh, Sangharachata as a monk some years previously, about ten years previously. Uh, Uchandramani was the senior most bhikkhu in India, and he felt, and he was much better known than Sangharachata, and he felt that would be a much more significant and meaningful person to conduct the ordination ceremony. And in fact, that was who who did um, conduct the ceremony of Dr. Ambedkar's conversion to Buddhism. And this took place on the 14th of October, 1956, exactly 40 years ago. And the, uh, the place was Nagpur, which is right in the middle of India. If you, if you stuck a pin you know, in the middle of India, you'd hit Nagpur. Uh, these, both the date and the place were you know, selected with a lot of consideration on the part of Ambedkar. The 14th of October was actually a Hindu festival day. Uh, of light, of uh, movement from darkness to light. Uh, For instance, it was also just a practical time of year that a lot of people could travel easily. It was the end of the rainy season and it was not the hot season. So it was a good good time. It was also associated with the Emperor Ashoka's personal conversion to Buddhism. So there was a kind of lineage there from the Buddha to Ashoka to Ambedkar and it was you know, the 14th of October. Nagpur was associated with the Nagas. I don't know if any of you know about the Nagas. I'm not going to say too much about the Nagas, but they hold the Dharma in the depths. They're sort of serpents and dragons, and they, they hold the, the Dharma in the depths until it's needed, and then they, they offer it up. And so Nagpur was associated with the Nagas, also with Nagarjuna, who was a very great teacher, and was associated with the... Uh, Perfection of Wisdom School of Mahayana Buddhism. So Nagpur, on the 14th of October, became the date and place for the conversion ceremony and Ambedkar sent out a call to his people to join him. And this is what they did. And they came from all over India. Uh, Approximately 500,000 of them, half a million people, descended upon Nagpur. And uh, the, uh, the usual population of Nagpur was about 500,000. It's quite a big city. And so the population during a period of a week of Nagpur doubled, basically. And they were everywhere. And they'd come specifically wearing brand new white clothes. No more cast-off clothes. No more rags. They came in their best white clothes. And you can imagine this city. It was an astonishing People called it a political stunt, but it was an astonishing thing that happened. And it's an astonishing thing, therefore, that we're celebrating. These 500,000 people came in their gleaming white clothes to Nagpur to answer Dr. Ambedkar's call. He was their leader and had been for many years. And so it was that uh, in the morning, Dr. Ambedkar took the traditional three refuges from Uttarandramana. He chanted them out in call and response three times. To the Buddha for refuge I go, to the Dharma for refuge I go, to the Sangha for refuge I go. He also chanted out the five precepts, uh, not to kill, not to steal, uh, not to lie, not to engage in sexual misconduct and not to indulge in intoxicants. Basic five lay precepts. After which he did something, he did two things that were very unusual and quite unprecedented, something completely new. He read out an additional twenty-two personal vows. They're very significant, these twenty-two vows, and they were continuously read out at all subsequent conversion ceremonies. I'm going to read them out to you, at least the essence of them. Um, okay, the 22 vows. It only takes a minute. <laughs> Sounds heavy, doesn't it? Um, they're, very, they're very important, you see, these 22 vows. In these vows, he pledged himself not to believe in the gods and goddesses of Hinduism or to worship them, not to regard the Buddha as an incarnation of Vishnu. That's, again, how Hinduism had kind of dealt with, or Brahmins had dealt with the Buddha. He was an incarnation of Vishnu. Not to perform the traditional Hindu rites for the dead, not to employ Brahmins to conduct religious ceremonies, as well as, more positively, to believe in and seek to establish the equality of men and women, to follow the path shown by the Buddha, and to observe the Buddhist precepts. The last four went like this. Ambedkar declared, I renounce Hinduism, which is harmful to humanity, and the advancement and development of humanity, because it is based on inequality and I adopt Buddhism as my religion. I firmly believe that the Dharma of the Buddha is the only true religion. I believe that I am experiencing spiritual rebirth. I solemnly declare and affirm that I shall hereafter lead my life according to the principles and teachings of the Buddha and his Dharma. That is the essence of Ambedkar's 22 vows. And uh, I don't want to sit here, actually, and, and denounce Hinduism, but you can understand why Ambedkar had to do that, and he had to say that in no uncertain terms. And he made it very clear to his 500,000 followers that were there with him that morning what he was doing, and spelt it out. Now, he, that was the first significant and unusual thing that he did at an ordination ceremony. What he did next was even more unusual. He personally turned around and asked anyone that wanted to also convert to to Buddhism to stand up. They all stood up, all 500,000 of them. (laughs) And he personally conducted the ordination ceremony. This would be unthinkable under normal circumstances. There There were many bhikkhus present. The senior most bhikkhu in India was present It was unthinkable for a lay Buddhist to stand there and conduct an ordination ceremony. And this is what he did. He conducted the ordination ceremony, the refuges and precepts, and the 22 vows. And in doing so, actually at the end of this, what he said was, I have been liberated from hell. So, there you have it. And what you have is the rebirth of Buddhism in India, which for about a thousand years had been extinct. And uh, at that time, half a million people became Buddhists. And really what he was doing here, as well as spelling it out very clearly what it meant to be a Buddhist, he was also, he 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 was meaning that these people were Buddhists in their own right. They were not lay Buddhists in the sense of being subservient to the monastic community. They were not supporters of Buddhism, they were Buddhists. They'd personally converted to Buddhism and they were Buddhists. They'd gone for refuge to the Three Jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And that meant they were Buddhists. They were not supporters of Buddhists, they were not supporters necessarily of the monastic, uh, the Bhikkhu Sangha. This is a very important step that Ambedkar made. Uh, he was a very critical of the Bhikkhu Sangha. You know, he was very critical of Hinduism. He was very critical of Buddhism. He was a very critical man. People used to like shudder when they went in to see him. He was terrifying. <laughs> Sangharachita said the same thing at his first meeting. It was, like, it was terrifying. He was very, he was very critical of the, of the Bhikkhus. He said that the Bhikkhu Sangha is a huge army of idlers. You can, you can again, you can understand where he was coming from. And Bedkar had been busy, you know, opening schools, you know, etc., 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 etc. So these were very significant things about this about this ceremony. On on the subsequent days, these mass conversions continued. Nothing like that had ever happened in Buddhism, or as far as I know, in anything else. Actually, quite like that. Uh, and millions of people became Buddhists uh, by the time Ambedkar died, which was just six weeks later. Now, in between, I hope I'm not I'm running out of time here, but I haven't got much more to say. In between, he had his last meeting with Sankaracharya. Now, Sankaracharya had not been present at the um, at the ceremony because he was already on tour at the invitation of the Indian government with a number of other eminent Buddhists and they were celebrating the 2500th year of Buddhism. And the Indian government was officially celebrating this and the way they were doing that was they were, they were having this tour going around all the Buddhist sites with all these eminent Buddhists of which one of whom was Sangarachata. And they'd actually got hold of the relics of the Buddha and the Sariputra and Moggallana from the from the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, and they got them back to India, and they were touring around with them. <laughs> now, at the time of the conversion, uh, Ambedkar received many, you know, letters of congratulation from Buddhists all over the world. He didn't receive anything from his own government, who were actually celebrating this Buddhist anniversary of the 2,500th year of Buddhism. It's quite incredible. There you go. Uh, so. Ooh. I'm going to give you a couple more quotes from Ambedkar. You just can get a sense of him from these. These are things that he said at the subsequent conversion ceremonies. The next day, he, he, he conducted this ordination of another 100,000, I think, that had got late for the ceremony. I do not want blind followers. I do not like sheep mentality. Those who wish to go for refuge to the Buddha should do so only after counting the cost. there is no God. In place of God, there is morality. This is something that Ambedkar stressed again and again and again, morality. In what the very simplest description of the Buddhist path is, ethics, meditation, wisdom, morality, meditation, wisdom. It starts with morality. It's a key point in Buddhism. There's no God there's morality, there's taking personal responsibility for your actions and the results of your actions. This is a very key point in Buddhism. And this is something Ambedkar stressed to his people. And he wanted to recreate the Buddhist ideal of Sangha, or spiritual community, in a form appropriate to modern conditions. I think this is very relevant to us. This is what we're all trying to do, really. So, he had his last meeting with Sangharachita um, after the mass conversions and before he died. It's a very moving account. I, can't, I haven't got the time to read it out to you, which I'd like to do. It's in this book that Sangharachita wrote ten years ago. It's a very moving thing. He arrived with all these eminent Buddhists. They especially went to, to Bombay, a whole gang of them all with their different colored robes and so forth. And they all arrived at Ambedkar's place to pay their respects and to congratulate him. And they had to meet outside because the the building was too small and they couldn't meet inside. So Ambedkar had a table set out in the compound and he came out to meet them. He was wearing a pith helmet and a tropical suit. He always wore Western clothes, Ambedkar. Sangaracha, the Englishman, was in his, you know, orange robes. (laughs) And Ambedkar totally ignored all the other eminent Buddhists called Sangharachita over to him, and talked to him for two hours. He kept all the others just waiting there. He basically handed over the whole thing to Sangharachita. In effect, this is what happened. Sangharachita, after 10 minutes, realized Ambeku was very, very sick, shouldn't be out there in the heat, and tried to draw the meeting to a a close. He said, we've just come here to pay our respects, to congratulate you, well done, off you go inside. But uh, Ambedkar would have none of it and kept him there for two hours. And he, he describes it that by you know towards the end of the meeting, Ambedkar was stretched out. He was a very big man. He was stretched out on the table with his arms stretched out. And his head slowly just came to rest on his arms in front of him. And he was still talking to him. And the last thing that he said to him was, there's so much to, to do. There's so much to be done. And his eyes just closed while he was still talking to him. My just stretched out. It's a, very, it's a very moving account. A very short time after that, Ambedkar did in fact die. He was, amb- he was uh, diabetic and he had a heart trouble. On the 6th of December it was that he, that he died, just six weeks. And this was devastating, of course, for this mass conversion movement. There were several million Buddh- Buddhists at this point. And uh, it just happened that Sangharachita was traveling back up to nor- the north of India where he lived and he was traveling by train, as one tries to do in India, it's not very easy, and he was in Nagpur, the place where the conversions had started, halfway from Bombay up to where he was going, and that's where he found out about the death of Ambedkar while he was at Nagpur. And that night, a public meeting was held, and he was invited to the public meeting. There were many speakers there. There were 100,000 people present, there was no stage, nothing, it was a spontaneous meeting. Sangarachta was the only speaker that could actually speak that night. Some up to 20 people tried to climb up onto this rickshaw and address the crowd of 100,000. They were all sobbing. The whole 100,000 people were sobbing, if you can imagine such a thing. And uh, the speakers would get up and they would just stand there sobbing and then they would get back down again. And the next speaker would come up and they would sob. And they would go back down again. And Sangeeta stood up and he talked, and he talked for 40 minutes, and he said to them basically that Ambedkar lived on with them, and it was up to them to continue, and Ambedkar uh, would live on in their heart, and would live on in their hearts. He said that he had a peculiar experience while he was speaking that he felt this enormous, enormous presence over the crowd. Whether it was just the collective grief of these people, or their sense of Dr. Ambedkar, or whatever it was, he describes this huge presence there that night. And he said that really it was that night that he became involved in this mass conversion movement. And he continued it for the rest of the time that he was in India. He personally went around. During the next four days, he gave 40 lectures. That's 10 lectures each day. He would go to a different locality, And he was doing the same thing, all these grieving people. And he was just kind of encouraging them to practice the Dharma and to honor their great leader who died. And he continued the initiation ceremonies. 50,000 people here, 100,000 people there and so forth. It's quite extraordinary. He was a young monk in India. And he he, he answered the call and not very many other uh, bhikkhus did. He almost single-handedly kept it going, and it continued for eight years. He would do regular tours every year. He had other responsibilities and commitments, but he would spend half the year just touring around, giving these lectures to the ex-Untouchable Buddhists. There's a whole other story there about how Sangharachita then went back to the West in the mid-60s, which Jack has already told you about, which is great because I don't need to say, say that. And in 1980, uh, a few of his personal disciples went back to India and started working with his uh, disciples in India and formed the uh, FWBO in India, TBMSG as it's known, Trilokia Buddha, Maha Sangha Ghana, which means a lot of Buddhists, <laughs> in essence. And uh, and they started the thing called the Corona Trust, which is a social wing. And uh, so, the Corona Trust has been very, very effective in India. It set up hostels for boys and girls, schools, kindergartens, healthcare facilities, education projects, cultural projects, adult literacy projects, especially among women, um, right livelihood businesses, uh, agricultural projects, and more significantly than all of that, Dharma centers, especially all over Maharashtra, but also in other states. All of that has been funded from the UK up until quite recently. It was so successful that the Indian government started putting money into it as well. It's seen as the only um, social welfare projects in India that were not corrupt. And so they started putting money into it, the Indian government. So most of the money is raised in the UK. Some money is raised in the USA here. There have been fundraising tours here. And I think the most interesting thing that happened was one Taiwanese monk was touring in India, and he visited these centers. And he was so inspired, so personally inspired by what was going on. He went back to Taiwan, and he personally, single-handedly, started raising money in Taiwan. There's a lot of money in Taiwan. He raised millions of rupees. And uh, as a result of that, they've just built a huge uh, retreat center outside of Nagpur at Borderan, which I've visited myself not so long ago, uh, which has a capacity of like 400 people who can go and retreat there. They have re- the retreats there with like 300 women. It's un- unheard of in India. No such thing happened that women could be Buddhists and they could go on retreat. There's a whole story there, which I can't tell you, but... It's a very radical thing. I'm just aware of the time. There's so many little stories in this story, but I've got to keep it focused a little bit. Um, So it's very interesting that uh, this money is coming in from Taiwan in a big way. They're about to build the Nagarjuna Institute at Nagpur, which will be the biggest urban Buddhist center in the world. It's a huge project. So that's, you know, it's very moving. I'm just going to finish by saying something about my own trip to India, which was two years ago, and I went with a number of Americans. And I attended a retreat um, between Bombay and Pune, one of the uh, TBMSG retreat centers there, a very beautiful place. So I was on retreat with Americans and Indians, and uh, ordinations were taking place. It was a very unusual event because Americans and Indians were being ordained together. It never happened before. Uh, This was extremely validating, especially for the Indian people, that Americans were coming to be with them, to be on retreat with them, to go for refuge with them, to practice with them. And I was very fortunate to be a part of that, to take part in that. On the day of the ordinations, a small crowd showed up, which was 5,000 people, 7,000 people, maybe 10,000 people. I I have no idea. There was just an enormous amount of people. It's only a small... The shrine room is about this big. And with the ordinations taking place, and uh, in India, it was 5, chaos.
0: People. Would fit in. <laughs> yeah, there was
2: 5,000 inside, and I don't know how many outside. And it, it became known in my mind as Jai Bim Day, because the, the Indians, when they greet each other, these, these Buddhists, they always say to each other, "Jai Bim," which means victory for Bim." And that was Ambedkar's name. Bim Ambedkar. Jai Bim. So whenever they have a a meeting or whenever they just see somebody in the street, they just say Jai Bim to each other like this. And so I I experienced this day just saying Jai Bim a lot. And I would say without question, it was the most positive experience I've ever, ever experienced in my life. I'd never experienced that degree of human emotional positivity. I'd never experienced anything remotely like it. And I just kept walking back and forth and going back for more, <laughs> more Jai Bims. And uh, I've got in my pocket here this, which is my Jai Bim headband, it goes like this. I, I bought this, I bought 30 of these for a, a dollar. It goes like that, it says Jai Bim, so then I only had to do this to people, as you can't get <laughs> This is my Jai Bim ring, Dr. Ambedkar ring. I used to have a keychain. And uh, unfortunately, I just missed out on buying a a Dr. Ambedkar shrine, which is made out of very nice plastic and has a. You plug it into the wall, and the Buddha lights up on one side, and Dr. Ambedkar lights up on the other side, and there are little fairy lights all around. Unfortunately, they're all sold out by the time I went back to get one. But uh, when you go into one of the houses of These, the Buddhists, you know, you go into their, I say house, a little, it's a hut, a a box (laughs) with cow dung on the floor and a bed and some very shiny pots. This is how they live. They live in what we would call extreme poverty, millions of them. Uh, We've come to the nice part of the story, but anyway, when you go into into their houses, you know, there's like a family of 12 living in there or more, the grandparents and the family and all the children. And uh, that's all they have, a bed, some very shiny pots, and uh, a shrine, which you, you know, if you've got electricity, you plug it in, otherwise it just lights up. And uh, every house will have the picture of Dr. Ambedkar, the picture of the Buddha, and the picture of Sangharachita, which I still find an astonishing quirk of history, that you have these three figures on all these sh- millions of shrines, and uh, you've got this Indian man in Western clothes, like this, And this Englishman wearing the orange robes of the bhikkhu and the Buddha. And pretty much, I think that says it all. (laughs) That is the end of my talk. I've just got the signal here from Jack. It's nine o'clock. It's all over. But I think just to say my one word of conclusion that I hope what I've done this evening was to connect new people from Marin County with the people of Maharashtra, and that we've joined in together with the celebration that's that's going on there. So thank you very much, and Jai bin. It's
0: a different different kind of talk than you're used to on Columbus Day, I think. But it's own it's very fitting, or or Indigenous People Day. Um, In the spirit of both courage and uh, really it's a story, as you said, of going from suffering and from slavery. It's really, really slavery, what it means for a group of people who have been enslaved. If you can imagine being born as a child and your parents saying, you cannot go near the building that's the school or the temple because you will pollute it with your body, Um, and to have. Hundred million people born in that state, and say no, we really are going to reclaim our dignity. Um, so I thank you enormously for coming and telling the story. Um, Friends of the Western Buddhist Order is in the mission, and um, there is nothing about
2: our place in the mission. Nothing, I'm nothing I've, about your place. I've got well, this, this is literature about the movement in India, and especially the social project. So if any of you are interested, this leaflets and newsletters and stuff like that about it. So you're very welcome. I've brought these for you. So
0: so please feel free to come yeah. up. And if they do, if they are interested in the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order and the mission, is it in the phone book? How do they find it's it? It's on
2: your, the flyer is out on your board there. Okay. The pink good. flyer, Dr. Ambedkar. It's got, it's got at least our phone number on
0: it. All I right, think. good. <laughs> Um, One or two very short announcements. There are um, two women who need a ride to San Francisco. Is there anyone who can give a ride to San Francisco (laughs) this evening? Raise your hand if you can. Back there, would you come up and meet them here afterward? These two are sitting in the front. And then um, uh, Peter, the teenager. Uh, Peter, are you here? Are you in the back? You already have a ride? Okay, he's got a ride to Mill Valley. That's great. So those are um, the only announcements. I'd like to end with a chant, and then we'll sit for just a minute and go back. Um, And the chant, which we've used in a number of evenings, is this very simple repetition of the word that means I bow to or I pay respects. It's kind of like Jai Beam. The word is namo. Um, to respect to ourselves, <coughs> respect to others, respect to all life, to every being that is born in every form. So we'll chant that for a little bit and then sit in the stillness Na Namo. Namo. for you be filled with the spirit of freedom and courage and compassion for yourself and for every being that you meet. Thank you. Anyone who's interested in speaking with Parma Bodhi, he'll be up here for a bit too, I think. So feel free to come up.